Welcome to episode three of USHJA On Course. I'm Teresa. And I'm Tori. And today we're bringing you a bonus episode in honor of what was supposed to be USHJA's Hunter Week last week, which was unfortunately canceled due to COVID-19. Our guests were kind enough to still join us for an inspiring interview, and we're thrilled to get to share their story with you to enjoy. Speaking of, before we get to the interview, we'd like to go over some housekeeping from the association. A lot has changed since our last episode just two weeks ago, and sadly, it means a few more events have been canceled due to uncertainty surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic, including the 2020 Platinum Performance USHJA Green Hunter Incentive and International Derby Championships. Along with that came the cancellation of the Aon USHJA National Championships, which were set to take place at the Las Vegas National Horse Show in November. This was to be the third year of the national championships, which have been a huge success since they started in 2018, but we know they'll be coming back better than ever when all of this is behind us. We understand that continued cancellations bring great disappointment for so many competitors and members, but we hope that everyone out there is staying safe and prioritizing health over all else. Wherever your next competition brings you, make sure you're adhering to USEF's competition guidelines, wearing your mask at all times while unmounted, and practicing social distancing. Fortunately, a few events we discussed last time are still set to happen. The USHJA Gladstone Cup Equitation Classic East, presented by Intermont Equestrian at Emory and Henry College, will now be held Tuesday, August 25th at the Great Lakes Equestrian Festival alongside the Adequan USEF Junior Hunter National Championship East Coast. We're so grateful both of these championships were able to be relocated, and we can't wait to see the competition continue. The Sally B. Wheeler USEF USHJA Hunter Breeding Championships East and West and the Kim K. Smith USHJA Young Hunter Pony Championships are still on for the end of August, and we just wrapped up the inaugural USHJA 3-3 Hunter Seat Medal Final West. We're also looking forward to the Hunter Seat Medal Finals East iteration, which has a date change. It will still be held at the New England Equitation Championships in West Springfield, Massachusetts, but has been moved up to Saturday, September 19th. In non-competition related news, we wanted to send congratulations to this year's recipients of the $25,000 Hamill Family Scholarship for Further Education, Madeline Brymesser and Kristen Lafferthen. We also want to remind you that the August 31st application deadline for the JT Talon Memorial Equitation Grant is quickly approaching. This year, the USHJA Foundation grants $1,000 to one junior rider who has qualified for a national equitation championship at a fence height of three foot or higher to provide the support they need to attend. This year, if the equitation final chosen by the recipient gets canceled, the grant will roll over to the 2021 competition season, assuming that person remains eligible next year. Apply or encourage a junior rider you know to do so. Now, on to the interview you're waiting for. We're so excited to be joined by Danny Robertshaw and Ron Danta of Beaver River Farm in Camden, South Carolina, and Danny and Ron's Rescue. You may know them from their equine endeavors. Both have trained riders and horses to compete at the industry's most prestigious events. While Danny is a renowned judge and Ron has devoted countless hours to the USHJA International Hunter Derby Series as chair of the USHJA International Hunter Derby and Incentive Task Force, or from the incredible dog rescue they started in 2005. If you haven't yet, be sure to watch their documentary, Life in the Doghouse, on Netflix to delve deeper into their mission and how they manage such a large rescue and save so many canine lives. These two have certainly dedicated their lives to animals in incredible ways. So join us as we hear how they became horse-obsessed, how they juggle it all, and what keeps them motivated to keep doing what they do for the animals in their lives. Danny and Ron, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. We know with the cancellation of Derby Week, it's kind of thrown a wrench into everyone's schedule, but we so appreciate you still being willing to join us and talk about your involvement in the sport. So would you guys like to kick us off by talking about how you each got started in the horse world? Danny, you want to go first? (laughs) I just, I started riding when I was 10, and it was just like a power that came over me, and I just went nonstop learning everything I could the best way I could. I didn't really have lessons till I was 17, but I rode everything in the, in the county and um, 
they all would jump for me and do the, you know do things. And I guess I was like the brave little brat in town that that uh, just was nonstop, sort of the ever running, uh, ever ready bunny, I guess at that time. Unlike now, but I I went to school to make my father happy and my mother. Um, so I did teach English for a year, but along with still doing horses full time, and then. After about a year, then uh, I realized that even though I enjoyed that, that I was going to live the life of horses. So it's, again, it's been nonstop. And I started when I was seven years old. Um, I grew up in Barrington, Illinois, and everyone in the neighborhood all had horses and ponies. And so my next door neighbor, they owned about 20 ponies that lived out in a barn and a field and everything like that. So I learned riding, doing that. And then um, when I was nine, my grandmother bought me my first horse for $250. And that was the horse, the saddle and the bridle. And, um, you know, then we, a bunch of us in the neighborhood, you know, learned how to jump and we kind of read books and give each other lessons. And then, you know, then I started taking lessons and everything. And so it's just, um, even though I went, you know, to college and everything, I still, even then, was teaching riding lessons while I was in college, and um, just have been in it ever since. What was it that attracted you to the hunter ring specifically? When I first became involved with it, I just loved the beauty of it, the, the turnout of the horses, and the, and learning about style and technique, and all of that was fascinating to me, and how. Um, sort of function and form ran into the horses and uh, how so often how they were built determined a lot about what they could do physically. And I, it just became a fascinating thing to me when I was very young. I used to jump my dogs on leashes and then teach them to do it without leashes and my pet goats as well. <laughs> and, uh, but I loved the mechanics of that and I loved learning about movement and even all the different breeds, I was fascinated by the the, uh, the gates of the five-gated saddle horse and walking horses and the walk trucks and the pasifinos even. I mean, and you name it, I, I was fascinated by it. But to me, there was just nothing more beautiful than the movement of a, of a, a true hunter and the beautiful look of it. And uh, as I've said in judges' clinics and other places and stuff, I, I look across the ring, whether it's hunter breeding or whether it's under saddle or a horse making a circle to go to the jumps, I, I squint and try to see a silhouette of a picture that I love. And, uh, and when I see that, I just pray for the best. I mean, I think the thing that attracted me to hunters, um, you know, I've always enjoyed watching ice skating gymnastics because it's a sport that they're judged on technique, but they're also judged on style of performance, how they perform, their artistic impression. And so I have a real passion for the hunters because I really appreciate an incredible hunter that jumps in beautiful style, uses their back, uses their head and neck, is light across the ground, is ground covering in a slow, big stride. And I don't know, I just, you know, to me, I think being in the sport, we all appreciate whether we have them or somebody else has them to watch the great hunters. I mean, it's really, it, it gives you goosebumps. And, you know, I'm very disappointed because I think the biggest hunter event in America is the Green Incentive Program and the International Derby. And I think that whole week is magical for hunters. And so it is disappointing this year that we had to cancel. But I think it's, again, the safest thing for all exhibitors. So that kind of ties in nicely to the next question. You mentioned the style of performance you see in the hunter ring, and that is really exemplified in hunter derbies. And so we wondered how you all first got involved with hunter derbies and what they used to look like back in the day compared to what we see now. How we got involved in the hunter derby is Carl and Rush Whedon had a dinner party at their house in Wellington many years ago and had a vision to see this class that was like the Grand Prix of Hunters. And so we had a dinner at their house. Uh, Bill Maroney was also there and a lot of professionals, Brian. Diane Carney. And I mean, just many people there, you know, we all went forward. We had our first retreat during Devon that year in May. And um, Bill gave us the go ahead to form a, uh, they were called committees then to form a committee and to kind of go forward with this, you know, international hunter derby. And that's how we all got started in it. Um, 
you know, it's been an amazing evolution. I mean, I'll never forget the first year that we ran the Derby finals. We really didn't have Derby horses in the United States then because this was a whole new animal. And so we had equitation horses, we had jumpers, we had hunters, and it's taken all these years to get to where I really think we have a trademark stamp of what really makes a derby horse now. I mean, they have to be so scopy, so rangy, um, you know, to be able to jump with ease and jump in great style. And we didn't have that in the beginning. I mean, we had some good hunters, but you know, it's pretty hard at some of the derby finals. I mean, you know, one year we even had a jump that was five foot one and it was amazing how many hunters still jumped that, you know, I mean, they jumped that in international jumping competition, <laughs> you know, so to jump in a slow canter and have the scope and range and the style to do that. I mean, we, we truly have evolved to where people now go to Europe and everything and they want to buy a derby horse. I mean, it actually is its own its own style and its own breed right now. And so obviously as our sport has developed since then, derbies have changed a little bit. So for you two personally, how have you seen the Hunter Derbies change and evolve over time? Um, Ron could probably give you more details on, on that, but from my standpoint, um, I, I think the first year the, uh, at the finals, I, I, it was just a magical evening. Um, and the course was exciting and different and new and people were panicked about it and um, no one really felt prepared or ready but uh, but that's changed because the, the derby situation has, has grown popular at horse shows the only problem in the beginning most of the horse shows didn't have what we think of as derby jumps and uh, a lot of them didn't make a real effort. And I think a lot of the course designers didn't really understand the concept. And uh, so I think that took some time to develop to where people understood a little bit more about the course needing to be set to, to, to gallop, um, to have more pace and brilliance, and where the options are set to make the more difficult options fairer to the horse that, you know, that is going to attempt them. Um, and uh, it's just now that there's so many things that, that took up 30 minutes worth of questions at the end gate that nobody even wants to show up for anymore. They all seem to have it down pat now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been, a, a, I think, very educational for all horsemen to watch the evolution of creating derby horses because they actually, you know, had to go look for a different type of horse and a different something that had way more scope and range than we kind of were used to in the hunters. And that's been such a fun thing. I mean, I think if you went back in our archives and looked back at the first Derby, you know, to the third, to the sixth, to the ninth, to the 10th, you know, and, and just kept watching uh, just the quality of horses has just risen immensely. One thing that, that I overheard a rider say, or maybe she was saying it to me actually, um, but just, there's such a difference in just a derby horse and a derby finals horse. And, uh, and you know, I hadn't thought about it that way, but there are a lot of horses that can win the derbies all around the country in different places. But when it comes to the finals, it needs to be um, something really special that, that the rider really knows and can count on and uh, where the teammanship comes through to the to the very maximum degree and so far that's usually the ones that win it riders and horses that have been connected for quite a while and know each other inside and out and that, i think that's an exciting aspect of it too that since it's not not one man on a bobsled it, it's uh you know it's two working together as one both of you have had quite a bit of experience judging in the hunter rings. Can you talk a little bit about what you look for when judging a hunter derby round as opposed to a standard hunter class? Hunter classes obviously are compared each one against the next and uh, as to who does it the smoothest and the best with the least amount of errors. Also displaying the quality and movement and rideability and all of that sort of thing. That, that you like, but it becomes sort of standard with courses with a single and a diagonal and a line and a line with an in and out or just an in and out. 
and, uh, and they get to where they repeat themselves quite a bit. And it, it still takes the special ones to win. But in the Derby, a lot of times, that horse that you may see in the hunter ring, and if it was just showing against the regular hunter, sometimes it's not quite the mover that you might have in regular classes. And sometimes there's a little more animation to it, but there's a brilliance about its jump. And so much of that is, uh, we're, you know, we're always striving to have the true hunter win, win the hunter finals and the derbies and in, in those cases. But sometimes the horses are not the best ones for the division because they're not always the, the absolute most pleasing picture in the majority of, the majority of time at first. The best ones always are, and uh, and that's what's been fun about the Derby Finals is because the ones that end up in the top are extremely special, but they're not always the ones that are best for the for the hunter ring because they have so much talent. But if they did used all that talent up every week and did all of that, then they wouldn't be as special. Derbies, of course, I think have to be brave and yet not overused so that they can excel at what they do. You know, I think one thing, it's it's very common, even in the jumper ring, you know, there's many jumpers that are children's adult jumpers or junior and amateur jumpers, and there's some that are low Grand Prix horses, but again, the ones that make the top, top, top Grand Prix horses, the ones that can go on to the Olympics and stuff, I think that's a little bit what Danny's saying about is, you know, some of these hunters, they have so much scope and range, and sometimes at the 3.6 and stuff, they don't really shine. But when you get those big jumps that we do, like in the derbies and especially at the finals, that's when you see those horses really become electric and they really fire and they really jump in such great style. And that's, you know, that's what we all strive for in this sport. But a lot of times the derby horses are are special because they're horses that have one in the regular hunter divisions. And as they get a little bit older, they don't need to do that the rest of their lives. They've already done it for a few years already. And, uh, but they're special, and you, you don't want to retire them, and you don't necessarily want to let them go to a, a lesser kind of ride if they still have that talent. So some of the derby horses are extremely special horses that are now sort of being preserved for the big events. And rather than showing week after week after week in, in each division that it was eligible for, uh, they're saved for the derbies. And, uh, and made to be very special. So they, they come out and they have a big interest in it rather than the boredom that gets created by repeated show ring riding. It's very clear you guys are very passionate about not only the hunter ring, but also hunter derbies. We can't talk all about USHJA Hunter Derbies without talking about the title sponsor of the USHJA International Hunter Derby Championships and Green Hunter Incentive Championships, Platinum Performance. Platinum Performance is a proud sponsor of the United States Hunter Jumper Association. At Platinum, we know it takes passion, dedication, hard work, and the right nutrition to reach your goals. For over 20 years, Platinum Performance has been improving the lives of horses by impacting health from the inside through advanced nutrition. No matter the level of achievement we seek, the love and care for our horses starts deep within us all. Platinum Performance, it starts within. So Ron, can you go into a little bit about what you do as chair of the USHGA International Hunter Derby and Incentive Task Force? Well, first of all, I used to be blonde and it's made me gray. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the first thing I did. But um, it's been, you know, it's been an exciting journey, but it's been very stressful. Um, you know, we were all pioneers in doing this, of creating the International Derby, um, you know, the Green Incentive Program. Um, we were very lucky to have Colleen McQuay from the Reigning World to be able to implement the tier system for riders in the green incentive program. Also to put that into the derby program of tier one, tier two. And that really was a very tough thing for professionals to understand. I remember when we first implemented the tier system, they were all offended if they weren't in tier one. They felt like they were losers. And Colleen explaining to everybody, just wait till you get into this. You're going to wish you were a tier two because 
you really can win more money being a tier two rider. And after a year or two, they all started experiencing that and saying, oh, I wish I could drop down to tier two. Um, but it's, you know, it's a lot of work trying to figure it out, a lot of tweaking, you know, like we had a lot of people that said, would we consider taking the handy bonus points away? Would we consider cutting them in half? And, you know, we do a lot of homework. We, you know, talked to over a hundred top riders and asked them and their consensus was for 10 points in the handy, they're going to go for broke. If it was five points, they're going to go wider, slower, and be conservative to try to stay in the ball game. And I think the other thing it does, it really puts the judges on a spot because on a one to 10 scale, they have to tell the entire world how handy was that horse. You know, I'm very blessed because I have so many great horsemen on my task force. And I'm very blessed to have a great vice chair, Colleen McQuay, who is so knowledgeable. And, um, you know, it's not just me. It takes all of us putting in our input into it and, you know, learning. And if we make a mistake, we try to tweak it and fix it. And so we're just um, kind of trailblazing because this is a whole, these both are whole new programs for our sport. So you referenced the Derby Rider tier system, tier one versus tier two. Can you go into detail about what the tier system is for people who may not know about it or understand how it works? The tier system is all based on money one of a rider, not the horse. We keep track of the money one in those programs by those riders. And so, you know, you can take your top 30 and those are the tier one the top money earners, and then below that become tier twos. But the interesting thing, like at the Derby finals, you know, there are many tier two riders that make the top 20 in the A section of the Derby finals. But let's say that tier two rider finishes third in the A section, that tier two rider probably won the B section, which is only eligible for tier two riders. The A section is eligible for the top 20 scores in the entire International Derby Finals. And so there can be a lot of tier twos in the A section. And so a lot of times a tier two rider, you know, like I said, will get a paycheck from being third in section A, but they win section B. Of, they, they were the best of all the tier two riders. And so they wind up getting two paychecks for their owners. And riders are really finding out. They're really loving it. The other thing that does is it encourages a lot of your tier one riders that maybe have a lot of horses to ride to give those rides to some good tier two riders because they have a better chance at even winning more money for the owners. Speaking of that money, that is a big component of the International Hunter Derbies. I believe up to this point, almost $15 million has been awarded back to participants from not only the championships, but also the International Hunter Derby series. So how do you think that incentivizes riders and owners to participate? I think the biggest thing is it's a big incentive for owners owning a horse. Because most of the time, before the Derby started and the green incentive, hunters were kind of fading away. Owners would buy horses, but there really wasn't a chance of winning a lot of prize money back to help pay their bills. Right now, when you think that we've given out, I mean, I really think it's near 17 million in the Derby program back to owners. They really love that idea that they are helping their horse you know, pay the training and the entry fees and going on the road. So, you know, even like the green incentive, those state classes, and then, you know, all that money given out during the green incentive finals, it really is a boost to where a lot of owners are wanting to own derby horses and green incentives. So we've seen a great growth period of owners wanting to own those two types of horses. And the interesting thing in that, we created the Derby first, which was our highest level of hunters, but the green incentive now has been a stepping stone where horses can start at three foot, they can move to three three, they can move to three six, they can move to three nine. 
We have the national derbies that they can jump up to three foot five, so they get to practice the handy and practice a, you know a smaller derby course. And so with this, I mean, I think we've given professionals and owners the tools of having like a stair system that they can keep moving their horses up. And eventually, if that horse is talented enough to become a derby horse, they have those tools to get the experience for the horses. Can you talk about some of your favorite memories of derby championships over the years and what keeps you coming back every year? Well, I, you know, for me, I've, I've judged it, I think, five times. And number one, it's a, it's a great experience judging because you sit with other judges and, uh, and, you know, you feel like your life's on the line a little bit that you, you know, try to get that right. Sometimes the view is a little far away, so it's a little, little bit more difficult. But I think what makes it really exciting is that as it culminates to the end each time, you're getting better and better and better and more excitement and more excitement. And it, and it puts just such a thrill in the air. And you really hope for every rider and every horse, you know, that, that they just keep topping the last one. Not because you want to beat the last one, but you just don't want the evening to end as far as the thrill of it goes. And when you see horses just try their hardest and the riders try their hardest and put all their heart into into their animals and, you know, put the test out there for them and say, are you going to do this for me? And, and am I, and I going to do my best for you? It's so cool when you see it all turn out and happen. And uh, when you just see them, you know, still six inches higher than the jump is set and, you know, at a, at a real forward gallop and out of tight turns and, and yet no one really seeing exactly what they're doing. I keep encouraging young riders to, to watch the riders that they can't tell what they're doing and try to figure that part out because that's where the secrets lie. The ones who show you everything they're doing aren't the ones you need to emulate. And it's the secrets of this that I think keep the suspense involved in it all the time. And I think that's where so much excitement comes from. I think one of my most exciting viewings of the International Derby early on was John French on Rumba. And, you know, that was early in the evolution of, of our derby program. But when he went in the ring, I mean, it gave you goosebumps to watch it because the classic round was so beautiful and light and airy. And, you know, John got the biggest scores. I mean, it was just gave you goosebumps. And then in the handy round, he went brilliantly but John knew he didn't have to be as handy because he was way ahead point-wise. And now that it's gotten so competitive, I mean, really competitive, just even like last year, 10 horses as they came in one by one, every one of those riders tried to out-handy the last one, you know, because the scores were getting higher and higher. And it really, I, I just think that the derby finals and the green incentive to me it's just magical to watch i mean i just it's my favorite event of the year and i don't think i'm being partial because most people say the same thing they love to even watch that on live feed so anyway i've, I've been in mourning for the last couple of days that it's not happening because i just love watching it we're missing it just as much as you guys don't worry <laughs> I think that video of John French and Rumba went around not that long ago, and it's still just as jaw-dropping as it was, I'm sure, in person that day. Yeah, no, it really, it was, it was magical. And, and, you know, and you just think about the winners of, of every year, you know, first through third or fourth, I mean, every time, I mean, they're so close and so good. And it just, you just, you know, you, you get the scores and you think, oh my God, how can anybody top that? And yet they can, it's still out there. And you know, so, Liza Talboyd, I think, gave everybody chills, you know, winning it three years. And that horse, Jack will tell you, that really gave him a place to shine, the derbies. And, I mean, she executed the handy round so smooth and so eloquently. It was just, you know, it was like poetry in motion. I mean, it looked like a skater skating around the ice. And that was very, very exciting to watch Liza do that, not just one year, but three years. Well, that was thrilling. But whether it was Liza or when Jennifer Alfano won it or Tori, it's been so good every year. It's just so fun to, to see the different combinations and, you know, how 
some of these things came about, whether someone was hurt, and you want to see how the horse goes for someone else, and it just keeps thrilling you every year. You've talked a lot about how a hunter derby horse and then even more so a hunter derby final horse is very different from your typical hunter. So for you personally, has there been one horse that you've seen go around the course and really feel like in your mind that was the epitome of a international hunter derby horse? Well, I mean, I think, I think, you know, like I said, Rumba, Brunello, I mean, there's many of them, but to me, the execution that Liza did with Brunello in the handy rounds was absolutely flawless. I mean, she did tight turns, but did them so smoothly. And that's, that's one thing that has been a little bit of a hard concept is that some of the hunter jumper riders still think a little bit that if they can really just jump and turn and jump and turn that that's being handier but when the horse looks rough and rugged doing it that's not the artistic part of the handy that we want and i think you know if you go back and watch the videos of liza doing those handy rounds those were just poetry in motion. I mean, they were executed just so smoothly. And so it looked like she was skating around the course doing the handy. And that to me gave me chills to watch. And even uh, I'm sure you all remember the shot of her last jump where that horse just jumped literally out of his skin. You know, that's what gives us all that real chill factor. I think private practice the year. Yeah, was, private practice was, was amazing. I mean, there's been many great boy. ones. I mean, many great ones. Jersey Boy. Jersey Boy. Too. You know, I mean, it's, it's the horses that won definitely deserve to win. What's fun also is sometimes, as I said, sometimes the horses are different. But like some of them that have won, we might have seen through the year showing. And yes, you love them. They're, they're nice horses and stuff. But you never see them during the year put in the effort they'll do when all of a sudden this looks like a big, bad, dangerous world out there. But they know the rider and that rider trusts them and they say, you know what, you know, you've been living in a little shallow shell your whole life. Here we are, buddy. And, you know, and they trust them and they go for it. And it's so much fun to see those horses rise to the top. Um, you know the talents. I mean, you think the talent's been in there all along, but you wonder, are they, they going to care enough? Are they... You know, are they really going to get into this or is this going to spook them a little bit or is this going to be over their head? And it's it's just so fun to see just horses that you know are nice. It's really exciting when you see them turn into just a special creation that night. And there's a lot of that. So after so many years of being involved, what would you say keeps your passion for the sport fueled? Well, for me, I love horses and I love the hunters and just the development of young horses reaching, you know, going to a point where uh, they can do that. I mean, we haven't had derby horses ourselves so far, but we've got some in the works that, you know, that very well may be there. But that's not the big thing to me. It's just the whole development part that keeps my interest in the hunters. I love seeing them come from dumb, gangly young horses into, you know, mature, sophisticated, beautiful, technically correct animals and love doing it. I think the interesting thing what keeps me going so much is we never stop learning. Every new horse we get into the barn and have to train, we learn from. We still learn from other professionals. And so I think that's the interesting part, no matter how long you've been in this. It's not like you're out of school and you've stopped learning. We still keep learning every day. Horses teach us new things every single day because you can't train them all the same. They're all individuals. They all have different brains. They have different makeups. And the key piece is learning as a rider how to become their friend. And that's when you have a lot of success with a horse, when they think that their rider is their friend. Calling all pony kids. We're interrupting the interview just for a second to talk about the official online horse show competition of the USHJA, digitalhorseshow.com. Join us for the USHJA Digital Pony Challenge, powered by digitalhorseshow.com. The challenge will be held from August 14th through August 28th and feature competition and educational opportunities available through judges Rachel Kennedy and Trey Hendricks' comments on every video submitted. 
In addition, there will be a special Review My Ride class, a mini clinic opportunity where 11-time Pony Finals winning trainer Patricia Griffith will give riders tips and feedback to help them learn and improve their performance. So outside of the horse industry a little bit, you guys are also in the business of running a dog rescue. So for anyone who doesn't know about Danny and Ron's rescue, tell us a little bit about what that is. Well, we began rescuing a lot of dogs from Hurricane Katrina. We almost went broke doing it um, because at that time we were not a nonprofit. So we were taking it out of our retirement funds. Uh, Once we became a nonprofit, it made it easier because people could donate and support us. But proudly this winter, we we hit our 12,000th adoption. And the dogs live in our house as part of our family. They sleep in bed. They can get on the furniture. They can go wherever they want. And um, we're very particular where our dogs go. Um, We were fortunate to Ron Davis, who adopted a dog from us. And when he was leaving our house in Wellington, he turned around and we really didn't know him that much. And he just said, gentlemen, you will be my next documentary. So he created Life in the Dog House, which has actually put our rescue in a whole different world. Once it hit Netflix, um, we have over 3 million views and seen in over 58 countries. So we have so many fans throughout the whole world. And we're currently in the process of writing children's books and a grown-up style book and talk about doing a series and stuff. So it's really, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a lot to juggle with training 30 horses and living in a house with 80-some dogs and getting them all adopted and medically taken care of and stuff. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very tiring thing because Danny and I get up every morning and we're responsible for feeding all the dogs in the house. So we make 80-some food bowls and all their medicines and before we go to the barn in the morning. So it's, it's a lot. The dogs have given us so much love and I think I know I can speak for myself. I've grown a lot as a person because of all of those dogs. Back before you guys were even a nonprofit, did you ever think that it would grow to the size that it is now? Never. (laughs) Never. We were clueless. Totally clueless. And even when we were approached about becoming a nonprofit, we were kind of embarrassed because um, we thought we don't even have a kennel. And, uh, you know, we have dogs in in different little yards at the farm that, you know, that we created to to keep track of it, and yet some of the dogs and smaller dogs and stuff just were not at all equipped to be barn dogs, so then they came in the house, and then we realized the ones that were shyer, that were staying at the farm, needed more handling, and so the way to do that is to bring them in the house, because you don't have time when you're doing the horses at the farm all the time, and uh, so it really is turned out that we feel like we really get to know the animals, and then we feel like we're better matchmakers that way. Because we want every dog to go to its final home. I mean, only one time, we hope it's its final home. And, uh, and of course, that doesn't always work out because people's lives change. And sometimes dogs aren't the right match, just as it is in humans. But we feel like if we know them, then we can at least start everything out on the right foot. And that makes a big difference. We're very blessed because of all of our you know, people that have seen the movie and believe in what we do. We're able to give back in so many ways, you know, because our rescue's grown so much. Like we pair with Meals on Wheels and anyone that has a pet, we supply dog food, parakeet food, whatever they have, fish food or whatever. And we also help with their medical bills. We're helping veterans be able to keep their pets, whether they need medical help or food. We're doing it with elderly Um, During this COVID crisis, we've given out now over 44,000 pounds of cat food and dog food to seven food banks. So we're very blessed in that we have so many people that believe in our mission that we can reach out and help so many people and, you know, not just help our rescue, but people there, even like when they had the fires in Australia, we donated money to those search and rescue dogs that were searching for the burnt koala bears and kangaroos. And so we donated money to those search and rescue dogs in Australia. And so we have so many fans in Australia and New Zealand now. I think it's safe to say you have fans all over the world, including right here at USHJA. We are huge fans of yours for all that you do for every community you're a part of. Can you talk about what you think really sets Danny and Ron's rescue apart from other rescues out there? 
I think we're very different. Number one, we don't have an adoption fee. All the dogs have everything done to them, microchip shots, dentals, whatever they need before they leave here. They live in our house as part of our family, so they don't live in kennels. Like we get a lot of puppy mill dogs that have never had human touch or touched the ground. And by living in our house, like Danny said, we get to know them. They become part of our family. So we really have a huge success rate of pairing them with the right home. Like when people tell us what they want, we usually can find the right dog for them. Um, we also, we have records of where every dog is. The owners that have them, they're not allowed to give them away to anyone ever because we make a promise to the dogs you'll never be in a shelter again. And hopefully you'll never be on the streets again or ever have to suffer again. And so by keeping the microchip in our name, if somebody's at a rest stop and their dog gets out or they have a house sitter if they're on vacation or something happens and scares it when they're at the horse show in a parking lot or anything like that, if somebody finds it and does the microchip, we have someone that'll answer the phone 24-7 and we can find the person that owns that dog much faster than anyone else is going to try to do. And so really important to us that if that time comes, we want the dog back. Or if you've got the perfect person to give it to, have them do an application so that we know who it is and where it is and that we feel safe with that. So they're never out of our sight or touch in a, in a certain sense. And I'm not sure that all the rescues do that. The other thing we're so proud of is whenever there are national disasters from you know hurricanes to floods or whatever we've been very active in helping you know in puerto rico we've helped in louisiana when it flooded when houston flooded we could not get our bus there but we were lucky enough to find planes that people donated the pilots and we paid the fuel and we flew dogs back to camden we were at the Camden airport. We filled the entire plane with whatever supplies they needed, and they would take it back to Houston because, of, you know, the water was so bad on the roads. You know, we helped in Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina with hurricanes. And so we're very proud of being able to reach out to a community and help a community in times of need. There's no doubt you guys have spent the past few years doing some amazing work. But what is next for Danny and Ron's rescue? I mean, our next thing is where Danny and I are very busy on writing four children's books. We signed a contract with Simon & Schuster Publishing Company, and we're doing four books for them. So that's a bit of a project. And we're also started working on the grown-up style for book. For older readers. Yeah, older readers. And, um, you know, like I said, there's talk of a series and stuff. So Danny actually... When he heard that, he looked at me and said, well, how are we going to do the horses, write five books and a series <laughs> and keep going? And we're not getting younger, but I don't know. The biggest thing Danny and I want to do is we want to leave the rescue in a financial position that when we are no longer on this earth, that it continue going on without us. Well, you guys have talked about some really amazing ways you've helped shape each community you're a part of, and we are so inspired by your constant desire to give and to help, and we're so excited to see what you keep doing. So to wrap up this interview, we have a segment called the Victory Gallop, which will help our listeners get to know each of you a little bit better. To start us off, what is your proudest moment? You know, I have so many moments that I'm very proud of. But I think my proudest moment is each day as I realize how much more there is to learn and how much more I want to learn. You know, that, that I'm, it's not all about the ribbons. It's not all about the wins. It's really about feeling like you're doing a good job and you're, you're teaching your riders and your horses what you want them to know and making it understandable and making it, you know, sometimes a little hard, but, it, but it's... Uh, it's part of the process of learning and going through the repetition. And it's, I think my proudest moment is having reached this age in my life and this time in my life where I realize how many things influenced my way of thinking and my thoughts and how many people I, I feel indebted to through the years. And, uh, and even the ones that I didn't particularly like what they did, at least I knew better not to do that than a, you know than something else so i mean you learn from everybody from the positive to the negative and uh i'm just so glad i'm still aware of that that i'm open-minded enough to if there's something i need to know i hope you'll tell me i guess my proudest moment is just all the wonderful 
kids and adults that I've thought, taught through the year that still consider me as family. And also just how many children through our dog rescue that we have taught about giving back. There's a little boy, Zachary, right now that is setting up booths and earning money for us. He's already raised $3,000, and I think he's eight years old. But how many of these kids during WEF that do boot shines and bake sales and everything to raise money for our rescue? I think it's so important for the youth of America right now to realize how important that is. I mean, I'll never forget one year in Kentucky at Pony Finals. We weren't there. And we always teach the kids about puppy mills and everything like that. And my phone rang off the hook. All these young little kids that were six, seven, eight, nine kept saying, Mr. Ron, Mr. Ron, there's one of those puppy mill places selling little puppies here on the showgrounds. And it's just making those kids aware of all the responsibilities and also about learning to work and to give back to the world. Because I think we're all here for a purpose and if we strictly take and take and take in life, I think we leave this earth shortchanged. And I think the more we can learn to give back to the world, I think we leave the world in a richer state. On a lighter note, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? <laughs> Chocolate. <laughs> um, I have a toss up. I'm a true seafood addict. I love oysters and clams and shrimp and lobster and all of that, but probably on a on a more affordable side, it would probably be cereal. And I haven't had cereal in so long, and I'm going crazy for it because uh, we're, we've been trying to do no sugar and no carbs. Um, me, since March, he's been doing it a couple months longer, trying to get back to a weight that almost resembled when we were younger. And... Uh, <laughs> And so I miss my cereal. <laughs> so, Both very good answers. <laughs> Who do you most admire? I admire everyone in our sport because we all learn from each other. And there's so many great horse, horsemen out there. And so I really admire, you know, so many of the other professionals, so many of the riders and kids in our sport that work so hard at it and especially the ones that truly love horses. I mean, I think that's why we're in this because we love horses. What is your favorite sound? Mine would be white noise. <laughs> <laughs> I love white noise when I'm trying to sleep. The sound of a fan or a ceiling fan, something other than just sheer blankness. I love that. And I think the other favorite sound I have goes to the opposite spectrum. I love to hear a storm. I love to hear rain on the windows and I love to hear, uh, I don't mind some thunder and lightning cracks and that sort of thing. I think my favorite sound is totally no sound because living in the doghouse with 86 dogs, I've learned to appreciate just dead silence, which does not happen very often. Not surprising at all. <laughs> so if you were given a 30 second Super Bowl ad slot, what would you use it to say? This has nothing to do with horses. I would just say, come on, people. We are one country. There's no reason we can't love each other and get along. I guess I would say, I think it's time for everyone on the universe to also love each other and to also think about giving back on, in this world in whatever little way you can Please try to give in some way, give to somebody in need, give to somebody that needs just someone to talk to, but think about how you can help another person or an animal or someone on this, on this universe. Including the planet Earth, how you can help the Earth itself. You know, like one of, one of my most exciting points this winter is we took a whole group of our kids that support our rescue and we went to the beach and we spent hours picking up all the trash on the beach. And those kids were so excited to do that and kept saying, can we do this next month? You know, and that, that fulfilled Danny and I so much. What is something you will never understand? I'll never understand how people can be cruel to animals. I mean, they're such innocent beings on this earth. And I, you know, we see so much abuse in our rescue of getting abused dogs. And I can never understand how people can kick and beat them and 
break them and just do what they do. In my wildest dreams, I cannot even think in that manner. No, and I just, I don't understand just actual meanness. It, it's still inconceivable to me that somebody on purpose will try to hurt somebody or offend them or upset them. I don't, I don't get that. I may have done it many times, but it was never on purpose. I just see what it does to young people and how hard it is for them to, to get out of that if they've, you know, if they've just never been treated well. So I think meanness is something I can never understand. What is something that makes you excited? I get very excited when we help an animal in need that has no way out except for us getting them out of that horrible place or condition. That to me is so fulfilling and I just feel so great about it that when they live in deplorable conditions and we feel like we can bring them home and teach them they've never had love in their life and show them what love is about. And I get excited whenever I see hard work come to fruition. Um, you know, the, the time and energy that you put towards something and, and when it really comes back around and you realize, you know, that we did it right. This is, uh, this is such a good feeling. And the other things not related to me that excite me, I love seeing flowers bloom. I love springtime. I love the grass and the, watching the fields. And I love watching young horses play. I love watching puppies play. And I just love it when you know something, something you've done, something you've had to do with has gone right. And finally, when people look back on what you accomplished in this sport, what do you hope to be remembered for? I hope to be remembered that I always cared, that I always cared about the riders, always cared about the horses, and really put my heart and soul into both of those. I hope to be remembered for in everything I try to do, for trying to be as compassionate as I can in doing it. I'd say those are all very honorable things to be remembered for. Well, that is all we have for you. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for such an inspiring interview. Oh, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this special bonus episode of USHJA On Course. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Leave us a review if you liked what you heard and follow USHJA on social media to keep up with all of our news. We'll see you next month.